Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to echo the words of that song as our prayer, that you would speak today by the power of your Spirit, lead us into your truth, and change our hearts now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There are not many things more in our world more despised today than authority. Whether we're talking about parents, bosses, church leaders, police, or politicians, we so often have open derision for the people above us. Or even if we do love them, we still don't like them telling us what to do. Now, there are countless cases of authority being used poorly, or worse, the scandals today of bullying, greed, or outright abuse are too many to recount, and we are right to recoil against authority used in such ways. And yet, today, I think we can also recognize that we want to be under authority that is used well. Last month, I was at a conference where I heard Pastor Mark Dever point out how every kid wants to be in the class with the good teacher. And every, after school, kids flock to the home with the good parents. Everybody wants to be on the team with the good coach. Everyone wants the job with the good boss. We even, we vote for the politician who we think will do the, at least the relatively best job. It's so true. Like He says, we all know that there is goodness to authority and that authority well executed blesses those under it. One basic definition of authority is the right and responsibility to rule or lead. God has perfect authority. That means it's not a bad thing inherently. God has perfect authority and he baked it into the recipe of our world when he told us to, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And thus, we reflect God's image when we exercise authority, acting in love for the highest good of another, like God did when he made us and cares for us. That's really what authority should be about, acting in love for the good of another. That's what those of us in authority should aspire to and what those of us under authority should be hopefully receiving and reciprocating. I wonder, though, what our typical responses to authority say about our hearts, our typical attitudes, like how independent and self-reliant, maybe rebellious, bitter, or resistant we may be to it. Or if we're in authority today, how, how confused or conflicted, concerned, or even harmful we may be in authority. 
Needless to say, that's not how God designed things to work in our world and in our lives. And thankfully, I don't believe it's the way things need to be, even starting today. Like if we want to grow by God's grace in responding to or exerting authority in our lives, then God's word, I believe, has something to say to us today. The Bible addresses relationships with authority a number of times, including in Ephesians, which we've been going through. I invite you to open up there if you haven't already. Turn there to Ephesians chapter 6 now. We're on to the final chapter in Ephesians. And this is in a, a string of passages meant to show us how to live out the gospel in our lives. So if Jesus has already saved us, loved us, by grace brought us into his family, how then should that be reshaping us? It's also a passage that expands on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a church community filled with the Spirit, that community will be characterized by, as it said way back in chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And today, we'll see two such areas that that plays out in. Now, I'll be the first to admit that some of what we'll read today may sound antiquated to you. It may sound antithetical to our current culture, or at least anti-Disney ideals. But we need to realize that, that our faith is really countercultural in every culture it's found. Because it's a heavenly faith in a God of truth who is intrinsically foreign to us. Even the first century world would have raised their eyebrows at some of these passages. Because, see, Paul wasn't just relaying how patriarchal Greco-Roman households were run. Not at all. No, even within their own culture, Paul's words were liberating. Radically liberating. For example, wives, children, and slaves are addressed equally with husbands, fathers, and masters. Their own calling was just as responsible and honorable and important. None of us are given any room for pride or superiority or domineering in any way. Instead, we must all decide whether we will submit to the Lord's authority in our lives. First, because he gives some really clear commands here, not just suggestions or recommendations. Over the nine verses we'll look at today, there are two clear sections addressing four groups of people. However, I believe that both sections, all four groups, make the same overarching simple points. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth a bit to see how each tells us similar things. The first group Paul talks to is children. A few verses down, he talks to bondservants or slaves, both of which are clearly people under authority. And here's the big idea that we're going to see. All right, is this, that the Lord commands that authority is to be obeyed. And you might ask, all authority? 
I'd say, well, no, not all authority indiscriminately, but in general, most of the time, if it doesn't lead you against God's ways, then yes, the Lord commands that authority is to be obeyed. So, kids, here's the moment in Ephesians you've all been waiting for, or dreading, perhaps. When the Bible talks directly to you, talking as much to you as to the adults, which means that you are a super important part of Jesus' family in the church. God has some very important instructions just for the kids. Look with me. It says in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So if Jesus loves you, and you love Jesus, then this is one of the biggest ways that you can show that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know what it means to obey your parents? We tell our kids that obedience is doing what I'm told immediately, cheerfully, and completely. So doing what I'm told, doing what your parents tell you to do immediately, immediately or instantly, as, as quickly as you can. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Like if you wait to obey, you're not obeying. So when your mom tells you to, to get in the car, get in the car. Or when your dad tells you to brush your teeth, you do it right away, not after you're done beating some level on your game. So immediately, cheerfully, which means not complaining, whining, moping, or throwing a tantrum. So when your parents tell you to start your schoolwork or your homework, you don't whine. Ah, why? But you say, okay, you do it. You know your parents want the best for you, and that means sometimes doing things you don't necessarily want to do or enjoy doing. So immediately, cheerfully, and completely, not leaving things half done, half put away, half cleaned. So, for example, when they ask you to wash the dishes, you don't just wash the dishes in the sink while ignoring the dishes on the table. You wash them all. Now, I'm not just saying this because I'm a parent and I want to order my kids around. <laughs> I'm saying this because God tells us this is the right thing to do. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Many people in our world laugh at the idea of there being simple right and wrong. But God doesn't laugh. God is righteous in himself, and he says that this is right for us. For the adults here, if you scoff at this, remember that almost every civilization in history has regarded as a basic truth that parental authority is necessary for a stable society. We're the outlier here. And if you're a parent, 
Remember that, yes, you must insist that your child obeys you, even if it's uncomfortable. Don't give up just because it's taxing or tiring or troubling to discipline. This is a responsibility given to you by God. You, not the kids, are meant to be in charge. Brian Chappell comments that if we love our children too much to require them to do what is right, then we have not really loved them enough. And kids, I know that it can be really hard to obey. I was a a kid too at one point, believe it or not. But everyone has to do hard things in life. It's part of being human. And I know that you kids will not be an expert right away at this. I hope your parents get that too. And whenever you do disobey, I want you to know that there is forgiveness in Jesus. There's grace in Jesus. If you ask him to forgive you, he will. And I pray your parents will forgive you too. If you know and love Jesus you have an even bigger reason to obey. This says to children, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord means that we should obey our authorities if Jesus is our Lord, right? our boss. We need to obey him most of all. And he wants us to obey our parents. So what if your parents tell you to do something wrong? That won't usually happen. Even if your mom or dad don't love Jesus, you can still make your bed when they tell you to. But yes, sometimes even one of our parents could tell us to do something wrong. And if they tell you to disobey Jesus, that's when, they, that's when you disobey them. And you obey your parents as long as you can do so in the Lord. And then we're given proof that this is the right thing as it came straight from the Ten Commandments, which came straight from God's mouth. Verse 2 quotes that. It says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now we can honor our parents with our actions and our words and our hearts, to do what they ask of us with a cheerful heart, to speak respectfully to them. If we're already grown up, like you're not called to obey in the same way, but we can still honor our parents by seeking seeking their counsel, by speaking well of them to others, and by doing what we can to honor them, to please them. Now, if you're thinking today, well, I, I want to honor, I want to obey them, but my parents aren't perfect either. First of all, I completely agree with you. No parent's perfect. Second, don't worry, we're going to come back to them. For now, though, I want us to skip down to verse 5, where another group of people are told to obey. It says in verse 5, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, 
doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And at these words, all our modern alarm bells start going off. The Bible endorses slavery. <laughs> Why does the Bible endorse slavery? <laughs> we know today how vile, abusive, and utterly horrific slavery can be. So it doesn't sound to us very right if God's word sanctions it. It might even sound immoral or wrong. Few quick thoughts here. First of all, not all slavery was as abusive as the slavery we know of in recent times. The word for bond servants in our version there it says bond servants. That can refer to slaves, to servants, or to bond servants. It's got a, a wide range of meaning. The word for bond servants here uh, were they were voluntary servants. Usually in order to pay off a debt. They put themselves under someone else to do that. Many other servants were hired hands in rich households, basically as employees. So you have slaves that were doctors and teachers and managers and musicians and artisans and all kinds of other things. Like some slaves were more educated than their masters. Some slaves owned slaves of their own. And yet, Many slaves were still miserable or mistreated. And all slaves didn't have independence. And so whatever kind of slave someone was, they were legally bound to serve their master. And we can recognize that, that that's, it's okay to say that not all is right or good in that. There's some, some things that are really wrong about that. Second thought, we have to understand that the Bible nowhere endorses slavery, nowhere sanctions slavery. The Bible does often address people in the immediate cultural realities that they were already in. But talking to people living in slavery is no more of an endorsement of slavery than talking about living in the Roman Empire was an endorsement of imperialism or talking about responding to persecution is an endorsement of persecution. You know, there's, there's all kinds of negative, bad things that Christians walk through in life. And the Bible tells us, here's how you should act in the midst of that. We might wish that, that Paul went all William Wilberforce or Frederick Douglass on the Ephesians and demanded the, the total absolution, the abolition of slavery altogether, even if it was unthinkable in that day. But he doesn't. His goal wasn't to transform structures, but to transform people. Besides, even if it seemed to take centuries too long, God's word eventually subverted the structures too. Miroslav Volf explains, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. 
for an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. Now, there's more I could add here, but that's all I'm going to say on that today. But interestingly, I actually believe that these words written to ancient slaves can apply to us today. After all, any of us who are employed do in fact work for someone else. And some of us do indeed have people working for us. Now, I know that's not an equivalent parallel. We tend to have things far better than they did. And yet it's the parallel we have. And if they had things, if we had things far better than they did, then it means it should be far easier for us to obey it too. We both live under and exercise authority. So, first, as those under authority, effectively, employees, how are we to act? Look at verse 5 again. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, it turns out obedience is important for adults, too. Your boss tells you to do something. You ought to do it immediately, cheerfully, and completely. Now, with fear and trembling might not sound very nice and cheerful. But this isn't talking about some servile shaking in our boots lest we displease our bosses. Paul just told all believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ or out of fear of Christ. And thus, I believe that the one we are to fear here is not a master, but the master, Jesus. We are to joyfully and reverently submit to his rule. And as we do this, we will respect an earthly boss's authority and position. We're actually told to obey our earthly authorities as we would obey Christ himself. Did you see that? Bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now, when your boss pulls you aside or comes up to your desk or sends you an email, assigning some task to you, just imagine if they were Jesus. Like if, if Jesus was calling the shots at your workplace. How would you respond if, if Christ were the one telling you what you need to do? And now realize that effectively, he already is. Obey as you would Christ. Is this how we work when we're at work? Are we trying to find ways to, to skirt the hardest jobs or to, to pass work off to someone else or to, to, be, to get away with being lazy or, or not doing jobs to the best of our abilities? Like, think of this. Your boss's authority is grounded in Christ's authority. 
And if actual slaves in a system of inequality were to respectfully obey their masters, how much more should we be willing to represent Christ to our employers? Get this. Like if you follow Christ, you actually are a slave, a voluntary one, but a slave nonetheless. Like we live to serve Christ now. As it says, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So we aren't meant to work especially hard when our boss is nearby or watching us, and we shouldn't be motivated just to win their favor. Our real boss is always watching and we already have his favor if we have Jesus. With his blood, he has redeemed us from our slavery to sin. And we are now bound to him as his servants, which is really true freedom. Some of you might wonder as we read this, like, how do we get rid of our, our people-pleasing tendencies? And I'm right with you. This is something I, I struggle with on a regular basis. Don't have time to, to delve deeply into this today. We could talk more if you want about it. But the best way to get our eyes off of people is to get our eyes onto Christ. The best way for, our, for us to get our eyes off of other people is to get our eyes onto Christ. Did you see how much this passage emphasizes this? As you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, as to the Lord and not to man. It keeps directing us there. Now, Philippians 2 famously tells us of how Christ came to the earth, taking the form of a servant or slave, and then he went even further than that, becoming obedient to the point of death. In other words, he was treated like a condemned criminal and executed in our place before he was raised from the dead and exalted to heaven as king forever. That's the king and the master that we now serve. At least if you've confessed Jesus as your Lord. Which I urge you today if, to do today if you haven't. We'll never need to go as low as he did. But if, if he went so low as that... How could we not willingly go low to serve those he puts, under, puts over us? We can never go as low as he did. But the gospel isn't just good news for Jesus, exalted as king now. It's good news for us too. Because when Jesus saves us, he astronomically elevates our status in life. And we no longer are Christian slaves, just slaves of men. They're slaves of Christ, which, by the way, is a position higher than any ruler on earth. 
No longer are you just an employee of the federal government or of the Ottawa hospital or of the school board or of, uh, of some store or company or business. No longer you just work for your own home. You are a bondservant of Christ. And that means you have a much higher calling now. That might not change our current position, but it ought to radically change our perspective day to day. Inspiring us to serve, as it says here, with sincerity and from the heart and with good will. And though we serve from a place of security, having already received grace and salvation, God knows that we are naturally motivated by rewards. And in his grace, he offers them to us. Because, because I think we hear this, the Lord commands that authority is to be obeyed, and we wonder, will it really be worth it? Will it really be worth it? Like, kids don't often want to obey their parents. Workers don't often want to obey their bosses. Will it be worth it? I think God's word tells us in the end, obedience will absolutely be worth it. There will be rewards. That those who obey in the Lord will be rewarded. And we're not just talking later bedtimes or bigger Christmas presents for children or higher salaries or better benefits for employees. You will be rewarded by the Lord. Kids, did you notice what it said back in verses 2 and 3? Look at that again. It says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, in other words, not only is obedience right, but it's also good for you. It's good for you. Now, you read that, and is that a guaranteed promise that if you obey well, you'll live a long life? No. But it's a general promise that things go better for you when you live in obedience. This is also a promise that was given originally to the, to the whole community of God's people. And the more that the children honor their parents following the faith passed down to them, the longer their community would, would live and flourish where God had them. Like we'll often tell our kids, when you obey, things go well for you. Or obedience brings joy. I believe it's true. It's not just true now in a general sense, but it's true eternally for believers who obey authority. Verse 8 is rather audacious. It says there, look at there. we haven't seen that yet. So rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So if we serve our authorities well, it says the Lord will repay us. We don't even need a nice paycheck now. We're getting paid by God one day. And Romans 11 asks, who has given to God that God should repay? The answer is no one. Right? This is sheer, 
utter grace. God does not need to reward anyone, yet he promises he will. Every Easter, my kids go over to one of their grandparents' homes for an Easter egg hunt. And, but however, all the eggs that they set out to find are just these empty plastic eggs, you know, the ones you can get at the dollar store. Once they find all their eggs, they, they go and turn them in to their grandparents, who then repay them for all their hard work with a pile of chocolate and candy. <laughs> now, do our kids have a right to those rewards? No. They're a gift. Right? And what they trade in is essentially worthless. And yet they're repaid abundantly. Now, even though we don't know exactly what our repayment's going to look like in eternity, how much more generous do you think God will be with his people who serve him? At the end of time, we'll be standing there with a bag full of empty eggs. And he'll receive the good we've done, and we'll receive his abundant goodness in return. not going to compare. By the way, be comforted here that even if or when your current authorities don't notice you, God sees. God sees. Now, that was a lot to say to those who are under authority, which is basically probably all of us. But what about those in authority? Because abusing authority is arguably the bigger issue these days. At least it makes the headlines. Well, God has something to say to those in authority as well. Again, we hear a rather simple yet crucial point that we need to hear and heed. And that's that the Lord commands that authority is not to be abused. The Lord commands, not suggests. He commands that authority is not ever to be abused. First, in the family. Look at verse 4, where it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Other versions say, do not exasperate your children. Don't frustrate them intensely. Don't make something feel futile. Don't push their buttons. As Chap Bettis explains, while we are the authority in our children's lives, that authority is not absolute. We are bigger and more powerful, can sin against them, have louder voices. We have an adult mind, experiences, and vocabulary. As a result, God commands us to examine ourselves. We are not to use our authority haphazardly or in a way that injures them. Anyone else feel a little bit convicted by that? Now, this principle can easily be extended to moms as well. All parents can provoke their kids. But let's not lose the emphasis on the special responsibility given to fathers here. In a world that has largely lost and abandoned good fathering. Dads, we've got to step up here. Lead our children in more intentionally gentle ways. 
We won't be perfect. But I believe that dad should be the quickest repenter in the home. The quickest to admit when they've gone wrong. For examples of things that might commonly exasperate or, or provoke children to anger, I read like, almost every commentary has a list of things. They include things like this. Unreasonableness, neglect, manipulation, constant fault-finding, inconsistent discipline, guilt trips, name-calling, favoritism, harsh scolding, hypocrisy, such as requiring behavior in your kids that you don't do yourself, out-of-control anger, not apologizing or asking forgiveness, emotional distance, pushing too hard for achievement, unfairness, overprotection, nagging or nitpicking, humiliating, comparison, and of course, any form of abuse. But the message really is this. Parents, especially fathers, do not abuse your authority. Remember that, that we, for better or worse, are a demonstration of God's authority to our kids. And so when we abuse our authority, we lie to them about what God is like. Remember as well that we are meant to, to use authority for the good of those under us. As Brian Chappell explains, this is the essence of biblical parenting, not acquiescing to our children's demands, but serving their ultimate need to live as God requires. Sometimes this service is pleasant and other times painful, but it is always characterized by the selfless application of one's resources, insights, and energies to the formation of a child's Christ-likeness. And remember that your children are persons in their own right before the Lord, and as such, they are never to be manipulated, exploited, or crushed. Now, there is grace for when we fall short. Chat Bettis concludes, The truth is that family life is messy. As sinners bump up against each other, there will be times we commit the sin of exasperation. The good news is love truly does cover a multitude of sins. As we seek to have a home of affection and authority, we must trust that God knew what he was doing when he gave this child to imperfect creatures like us. We parent by faith in God's goodness, not fear of messing our children up. So, if you hear all that, I don't mean to heap guilt on you at all. But if you hear it and you're convicted, if you've abused your authority in any of these ways, what can you do to repent today? To turn around, make a new start. And what should we do instead of provoking our children? Well, it told us that too. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This means that there are times you need to discipline your children, and there are times you need to instruct your children, both on a daily basis, likely. 
But you aren't just to, to bring them up, as it says, in your family's ways or traditions or your culture's ways or traditions or in your personal passions or hobbies or dreams for them, but in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, his ways. This can include praying for your children, praying with your children, having regularly scheduled times for family devotions or family worship, uh, reading the Bible with your family, teaching them diligently, both formally and informally throughout the day. As it says in Deuteronomy, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And then faithfully and consistently correcting your children through discipline, which is one of the hardest parts of parenting, often painful for both child and parent. And it's so easy to either be extremely inconsistent or to give up on it altogether. Yet Proverbs tells us that whoever spares discipline hates their child. But if you love them, you'll be diligent to discipline them. Ultimately, Christian parents won't just want their kids to submit to their authority and obey. Much more so, they'll want them to come to know and love and trust the Lord themselves. That's most important. So ask yourself today, are your parenting habits reflecting this goal above all others? The Lord commands that authority must not be abused. And the same goes in work relationships. Look down at verse 9. It says, Masters, do the same to your slaves, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, this would have been a stunning command in Paul's day. Masters, do the same to them. Treat your slaves in the same way. Now, that didn't mean that masters needed to act like slaves, but that they needed to treat their slaves with respect and sincerity and goodwill. There was no place for threats, no place for harassment, no place for violence, no place for abuse. This is a call for uncoercive, unthreatening, unmanipulative, unabusive authority. And is this ever a call that Christian leaders in every area of life need to hear today? If this, is, if this principle was seen as a sacred command from the Lord and honored as such, our churches, our workplaces, and our homes would be much better places. And if you don't take heed of this, hear this warning that there will be accountability. There will be accountability. Leaders will be held to account for the way they use the authority God entrusts to them. Do you notice that? Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. <laughs> stop your threatening, abusive leadership, because here's a threat for you. They have a master in heaven. And you have a master in heaven. 
and he doesn't play favorites. We're all equal in his sight. Christian masters or authorities are at heart fellow bondservants, fellow slaves of Christ. Therefore, he says, if you abuse one of God's precious sons or daughters using the very authority that he entrusted to you, watch out because God's got their back. If you've been abused by toxic leaders before, this verse should give you hope of vindication. On the other hand, if you are currently abusing your authority, this should scare you a little bit, or a lot. Again, it doesn't mean there's no grace for you. It's not an unforgivable sin. But it is something that we need to take super seriously and repent of promptly. As Mark Dever says, the accountability we have to the one above us keeps us from abusing the ones below us. And if it doesn't, perhaps we aren't so aware of him actually being above us. I think that that thought actually ties this whole passage together. Like we've seen that the Lord commands that authority is to be obeyed and that the Lord commands that authority is not to be abused. And why? We've already hinted at this, but here's the ultimate reason. Because all authority is under the Lord's authority. All authority is under the Lord's authority. Dever adds, only when we are under God's authority are we fit to be in authority over others. At every turn in this passage, we keep bumping into Jesus over and over again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, bring up your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your masters as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ, with goodwill as to the Lord. You will receive back from the Lord. Masters, do the same to them, knowing that he, Jesus, is both of your master. Back in chapter 1, it told us that Christ has been raised from the dead and exalted in heaven, seated in heaven, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name. To put it plainly, authority is under authority. All authorities are under Christ's authority. Children and parents have a father. Servants and masters have a master. Like if we get rid of authority because of the backlash against it in our world, we'll get rid of the Lord. God forbid. In ourselves, authority may be a, a broken thing that can go astray easily. But authority can also be redeemed. It has been redeemed. By Jesus, whose authority over us is holy and perfect. So may we follow him. Heavenly Father, please work in our hearts. Wherever there is resistance to these truths, would you soften us and lead us in the paths of righteousness today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.